well, please take your Bibles for our scripture or for our uh, sermon this evening and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The title of the message, if you recall, is Victorious Christian Living. And we talked this morning about the possibility of living a carnal Christian life and how so many of us as believers in the illustration that Paul gives here, based upon Israel in the wilderness, being redeemed out of Egypt, that being that illustration of salvation, not a, not a um, parallel between Israel's salvation and our salvation by any means, but the national deliverance of Israel out of Egypt as an illustration of the spiritual deliverance out of the bondage of sin. And how Paul said that they did receive this redemption. They did eat the spiritual meat. They were provided for by God. They were redeemed by God. And yet with many of them, God was not well pleased. They ended up dying in the wilderness and never attaining unto the victorious Christian life in the illustration. In their case, the peace found through the promised land. I'd like to read you an excerpt this evening from a book that speaks to the potential of spiritual failure as we begin this second half of our message. The author said this. He said, It is possible to be a Christian and yet be a failure. This is the same as Israel in the desert. Wandering around, the Israelites were God's people, protected and fed, but they were failures. They were not where God meant them to be. They compromised. They were halfway between where they used to be and where they ought to be. And that describes many of the Lord's people. They live and die spiritual failures. I am glad God is good and kind. Failures can crawl into God's arms, relax and say, Father, I made a mess of it. I'm a spiritual failure. I haven't been out doing evil things exactly, but here I am, Father. I'm old and I'm ready to go and I'm a failure. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father will not say to that person, depart from me, I never knew you, because that person has believed and does believe in Jesus Christ. The individual has simply been a failure all his life. He is ready for death and ready for heaven. We ought to be the kind of Christian that cannot only save our souls, but also save our lives. When Lot left Sodom, he had nothing but the garments on his back. Thank God he got out. But how much better it would have been if he had said farewell at the gate and had camels loaded with his goods. He could have gone out with his head up, chin out, saying good riddance to old Sodom. How much better... He could have marched away from there with his family. And when he settled in a new place, he could have had an abundant entrance. Thank God you are going to make it. But do you want to make it in the way that you have been acting lately? Wandering, roaming aimlessly when there is a place where Jesus will pour the oil of gladness into our, onto our heads, a place sweeter than any other in the entire world, the blood-bought mercy seat. Is it the will of God that you should enter? Excuse me. It is the will of God that you should enter into the Holy of Holies, live under the shadow of the mercy seat, and go out from there and always come back to be renewed and recharged and refed. It is the will of God that you live by the mercy seat, living a separated, clean, holy, sacrificial life. A life of continual spiritual difference. Wouldn't that be better than the way you are doing it now? This author 
understood something. And he used the very concept that we've seen here, the parallel between Israel to illustrate it. The fact that so many Christians are content just being saved and aren't forging forward into joyous, vibrant, victorious Christian living. A couple of review verses as we begin again this evening. We, we stopped halfway through verse 6 saying this, Now these things were our examples. What Israel went through in the Old Testament was intended to be an example to us in order that we would learn. We said this morning that failures of Israel were intended to become our victories. That their loss was intended or is intended to be our gain. That we are supposed to look at the ways that they faltered in their relationship with the Lord and we are to learn from them in order that we would not do the same. I brought you to Romans chapter 15, verse 4 as we close this morning. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. That our hope would rest in the reality that that which was is that it's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Certainly God interacted differently with Israel than He does the church today. Certainly the church is not Israel today. But those things were written so that we could learn. They experienced those failures so that we could benefit. And this evening we're going to look at the specific lessons. We left it on a general note this morning. Is there carnality in your life? Corinthians has talked about carnality from the beginning. We've pinpointed various areas. Are they in your life? Are you still wandering in the wilderness of sin? Saved, yes, but not living the victorious Christian life that the Lord would have you to live? Or have you entered into victorious Christian living? Well, this evening Paul is going to put his thumb on five areas, five lessons, five elements of carnality that you might have in your life. And we're going to learn the lessons from the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness that will help us become what we ought to be for Christ today. And so he says in verse 6, the second half, we'll read the whole verse. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Let's continue through verse 11. Neither be idolaters as some of them, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for and samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So verses 6-11 through 11 speak of the particular warnings that the Old Testament gives us concerning the sins that caused Israel to falter, that caused these men and women to be overthrown in the wilderness, that caused them to fall short of God's perfect will for them, that will that was Canaan. They could have been there in a matter of weeks into the promised land and yet they faltered. Now, the first warning is that they would not lust after evil things as the children 
lusted, as the children of Israel lusted. In the Greek, this word literally means to not be cravers of evil things. If we were to read it literally, it would say, don't be cravers of evil things even as they craved evil. That's what this word means. It's the idea of craving, lusting, desiring with one's heart, setting one's heart upon, putting one's priority and heart and desires upon something. The account of this evil lusting brings us back to Numbers 11. God's people were in the wilderness and they complained against the Lord. They complained against the manna that the Lord had given to them. They wanted meat to eat. Notice what it says in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4-6. through 6. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish when we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. What a statement. We remember how good it was way back in Egypt. Remember when we were in bondage? Way back in Egypt when... We had a male child and they tried to kill it because they didn't want us to continue to prosper. We remember how good it was with the leeks and the cucumbers and the fish and oh yeah, the bondage. And now all we have is this manna. What Psalms calls man-eating angels' food. All we have is this divine, supernatural provision that we don't have to hunt for, that we don't have to seek. All we have is three meals a day where we don't have to ever go hungry because we know that we're going to wake up in the morning and it's going to be there. And not only that, but we don't even have to gather one day of the week because the Lord has provided for us rest. And so He gives us a double portion the day before. All we have is that. They murmured. They rejected God's perfect provision over them, choosing rather to pursue the things which God had not divinely provided. And by wanting that which God had not provided, they inherently rejected or loathed that which God had provided. See, this is how it works. God provides us something and we begin to look at the grass on the other side. My... Other job that I work, driving in the school bus every morning, we end up in the country down near Montrose on some of those dirt roads and there's horses. And not a morning goes by that I don't see those horses craning their necks over the fence to get the grass on the other side. Horses have plenty of grass in their pasture, but they're always trying to get to the grass on the other side of the fence. They're not content with what they've been given, even though it's right there for them. They want what they can't reach. And see, it's not inherently that fish and cucumbers and leeks and onions were bad things. But it became wrong as they rejected the provision that God had given them because they wanted something that God had not. And not only is wanting something that God had not a problem, but what it means is that they rejected what God had given them. Paul says this is a lesson for us that we don't lust as they lusted. So while the meat and the leeks were not inherently evil, it became evil 
when it was the thing that caused their heart to reject that which God had given to pursue that which God had not. They wanted that above God's provision. And Paul tells us that their example is our warning that we should not crave after that which God has not divinely given to us. You know, God has provided for all of us in wonderful ways. But He's withheld some things from us too. Perhaps things that we want. Are our minds so consumed with that which God has not provided that we fail to remember what He has? Are our minds so consumed with what we don't have that others have that we fail to thank God for what He has given? As a church, is it this way? Are we so consumed with the fact that we're a small group and we don't have the money to do this and to do that that we forget that God has given us a tremendous building with heat and with air conditioning in the summer and we have a projector and a sound system and comfortable chairs? We don't own these chairs. We don't own that piano. This has been provided for us. And see, when we begin lusting after that which we don't have, we are telling God, God, what you've provided for us today is not enough. They were an example that we should not lust as Israel lusted. Verse 7, Neither be ye idolaters as some of them were, as were some of them, excuse me, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The second warning is against idolatry or serving an image rather than serving God. And Paul links idol worship to the wickedness of the people while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai. This is found in Numbers, excuse me, Exodus chapter 32. And let me read to you verses 6 and 7. And they rose up early in the morning, speaking of the nation of Israel, on the morrow, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You're familiar with the account? Moses had gone up to receive the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the law. The people saw that Moses had delayed in coming down and they assumed he was dead. So they demanded of Aaron that he make them a god. A god that they can worship. They wanted him to make an image through whom they could worship Jehovah God, in fact. So Aaron made the image. He made the golden calf. And the people began a pagan worship session complete with every heathen vice and every wickedness before God. They were attempting to worship Jehovah apart from Jehovah's prescribed means. And their idolatry led them down a path of God-rejection and self-sufficiency. And Paul tells us that their example is our warning. That we would not be idolatrous as, as Israel was idolatrous. Not just lifting things up above God, but lifting things up above God in the name of God. How often do we do that in the church? See, it's not that Israel was going back to worshiping Egypt's gods. Aaron announced, these be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee up out of Egypt. This is Jehovah God, he said. This is the God that brought you up. Worship the same God this way. And of course, God had already told them, thou shalt not make graven image. Thou shalt have no other God before me. They had lifted something up and worshipped it as Jehovah God. 
And the church does this in so many forms today. The Catholic Church does this through their saints. The Catholic Church does this through their sacraments even. Through the crucifix. Fundamentalist churches do this through their standards. They lift the standard up above God. They lift up how they look above the heart that they ought to have coming to the Lord. They lift up what they ought to do above the heart that they ought to have. Not that standards are wrong, we know that. But when we lift the standard up as God, it's the same thing that the Pharisees did. They made the Mosaic Law their God. And they worshipped the Mosaic Law as if they were worshipping God. And so when God came to them in flesh, they said, this isn't God. Our God is found in these rules. Paul said it's an example that we should not be idolatrous as they were. We should not lust. We should not be idolatrous. Verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. This third warning against fornication, literally there, the indulgence of an unlawful lust or a sexual desire. Sexual desires outside of God's divine permission. We've covered this somewhat uh, thoroughly in the book of 1 Corinthians because Paul has spoken in chapter 5 about um, it being the man that had his, his, um, his father's wife, probably his stepmother, and all of the issues surrounding that as he gets into 1 Corinthians 7 is good for a man not to touch a woman. So we've, we've covered this ground. And yet he's saying it again, as we look at the example of Israel, we need to remember that we would not commit fornication. This is Numbers chapter 25 that we see this particular account. Verses 1 through 9, it's the events directly after Balaam. You recall Balaam, Balaam and his talking donkey. Balaam and all of the events as Balak sought to buy the man of God to curse Israel. God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. So Balaam counseled with the king of Moab to send his women into the camp of Israel and prostitute themselves with the men of Israel. See, because Balaam knew something about God. He knew that even if Balaam could not get the words of cursing out of his mouth, he knew that if the men of Israel were to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab, Balaam wouldn't even have to curse them. God would curse them for their sin. God would be against them for their sin. So that was the strategy. Send the women in. Let them prostitute themselves with the men of Israel and then let God curse them. And indeed, that is what happened. Balaam knew the blessing of God upon the people was so closely tied to obedience and a right standing with God that if they fell out of obedience, they would fall out of blessing. He also knew that if there was fornication in the camp, that God would curse them himself. So these women went into the camp. God became very angry at Israel. It was not until Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, destroyed the fornicators that God's wrath was pacified. Prior to God's wrath being stayed, you see there on the screen, verse 9 says, and those that died in the plague were 24,000. 24,000 died through a plague in God's anger before God's wrath was pacified through Phineas and his righteous indignation. Now, there's a discrepancy that we should not overlook before we move on. 
Numbers chapter 25 tells us 24,000 died in that plague. Paul tells us here in verse 8 that 23,000 died. How do we reconcile this? We need to. See, because we know that if Scriptures are contradicting, the problem is not the Scriptures, the problem is our understanding. When, there's a, when we face a problem in the Scriptures, the problem is us, not the book. And so we need to reconcile this. Sometimes we can't, can we? Sometimes we don't have all the information necessary and we just need to, we can throw out some assumptions, maybe this, maybe that, and we can't really solve it. This is one of those where we can perhaps assume some things. We can get a good idea of where these discrepancies might come from, but we can't know for sure. There's no reason to assume, however, that the plague lasted only one day. And if we take Paul's words literally, he says, in one day 23,000 fell. Well, it's quite possible that indeed, in that plague, the main plague was one day, 23,000 died. But that this extra 1,000 that we find the discrepancy between the Old Testament and the New Testament may have been another day. May have been the day after as the plague finished its course. Or may have been the first day as the plague began its ravaging. So while we cannot fully know how these two accounts reconcile, we know they can reconcile. And though we don't know exactly how, it's not hard for us to imagine, because Paul was so specific, saying in one day 23,000 fell, that maybe that other thousand was peripheral. Maybe that other thousand was the day before. Maybe that other thousand came, if we take Paul's words very literally, on another day. Other explanations, perhaps. But it shouldn't uh, cause us heartburn at night. Their example is our warning. We've talked about this several times. God views sexual sin very seriously. And if we allow sexual sin to have a place in our lives, we allow a means by which Satan can strip us of spiritual blessing and effectiveness upon this earth. And so Paul says, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ He says, this references the account of the brazen serpent as Israel's example becomes our admonition. This is Numbers chapter 21, if you recall. The people of Israel were journeying through the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, the Scriptures tell us. Because of Edom's hostility against them, they had been forced to circumvent the most direct route because God would not allow Israel to destroy Edom. We know that Edom was a nation that came from Esau, Jacob's brother, that it was a nation that was indeed blessed, that it was a nation that the Lord had His eye upon, and so Israel was not allowed to go in and destroy Edom. So they circumvented Edom. This caused many of the people to become very discouraged. And in their discouragement, they spoke both against God and Moses. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, it says this, And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Again, loathing the manna that God had provided. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, the Scriptures tell us, and they bit the people. 
and much people of Israel died. The people pushed the limits of God's devotion to them. God loved His people. He had redeemed His people out of Egypt. They, through their own sin, had ended up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, and yet God was still faithful to them. He still provided for them. He still loved them. And even in the midst of all of that love, every problem that they faced along the way, problems brought upon them by their own sin, became a source of murmuring and and despair against God. They questioned God's goodness because of their own sin and the consequences of it. God had never been anything but merciful and kind to them. And they returned His love with rebellion. So God sent serpents among them. Their bite would kill them very quickly. But God also in His mercy made a way for them to be saved from the fiery death. God commanded Moses to forge a serpent out of brass and place it on a pole. When a person was bit by a serpent, they only needed to look upon this brazen serpent and they would live like that. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to work. They simply had to have enough faith when they got bit to turn and look at the serpent. Anyone who did not have the faith to look upon that brazen serpent would die in their rebellion. Anyone who looked would live. Jesus Christ connects this to his sacrifice on the cross in John chapter 3. We'll be looking at that in Sunday school in just a couple of weeks. Look and live, we say. That as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Israel's example becomes our warning. God loves us. God seeks what is best for us. Even if we're wandering in the wilderness of carnality, yes, He's going to chasten us because we're His children. Thank God He does because that assures us that we are His children. And yet, even though He loves us, even though He wants what's best for us, He won't always protect us from the consequences of our own decisions. For us to blame God for the consequences of our wrong decisions is to tempt God. For us to continue in sin as a believer, relying upon God's mercy to cover our wickedness, our apathy, or our rebellion, is to tempt God. It's to push the boundaries of God's mercy. And that's tempting God. Paul says we ought to learn not to tempt Christ as they did in the wilderness. One final lesson in verse 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. The fifth and final warning, not to murmur. This example is likely drawn, this one's a little more ambiguous, but it's likely drawn from the account of Korah in the Old Testament. The man who murmured against the leaders of Israel, Aaron and Moses. This final lesson brings us to Numbers chapter 16. Korah led many of the people into discontentment against the leadership of Moses and of Aaron. He decided that since they were all, all the nation of Israel were considered priests before God, they were to be a kingdom of priests, as God said, that Korah and his family should have just as much right as anyone else to lead the nation in worship. In doing so, Korah and his followers sought to usurp the God-ordained authority of God's covenant people and caused disunity, dissension, 
disagreement among God's people. On that day, Korah and all his family was swallowed up by the earth itself. Then fire came down from out of the tabernacle and consumed those who had followed Korah. But you know what? The murmuring didn't stop there. The murmuring didn't stop there. Following that, the next day, the people murmured against Moses and Aaron again and said, you have killed those of the nation of Israel. How dare you kill God's people? God allowed a plague to ravage the people for their murmurings, which was only stopped when Aaron, one of the people that was being murmured against, took a censer, stood between the living and the dead and begged God for mercy. Israel's example is our warning. Causing disunity in the church is a grievous offense. And causing the people of God to rise against God's ordained leaders is a grievous offense. Now, we are not, as some denominations are, that believe such as a Pope, that the Pope is God's representative to man and these sorts of things. Your pastor is a fallible man. And if your pastor were to lead this church in the wrong direction, it would be expected that you would tell your pastor he's no longer worthy to be the pastor of this church, that he no longer qualifies and that he needs to leave. But when we as God's people create dissension and disunity among the believers against the leaders of God when the leaders of God are are following God. We create, we do a, a great disservice to the work of God in this world. And so it was a lesson that we would not murmur against God ordained authority as they lead God's people. The five lessons are these as we review. Number one, do not crave that which God has not divinely provided. The lesson, be content. Second, do not place anything or anyone above God in priority or devotion. The lesson, be obedient. Three, do not pursue sexual desires outside of God's design. The lesson, be pure. Four, do not persist in wickedness resting upon God's long-suffering. The lesson, be fearful. Finally, do not oppose God, God's ordained authority. And I put in the church of God, but perhaps as I meditated on this a little bit more, can I expand that? The Scriptures tell us that God has ordained government as well. The Scriptures tell us that there are numerous authority levels that God has ordained. The family, government, and the church being the three particular institutions. The, the three-leg uh, stool, we might say, upon which God, through which God operates. Children, don't oppose the God-ordained authority of your parents. Citizen, don't oppose unbiblically the God-ordained authority of government. That's several lessons in and of itself. And church, don't oppose the God-ordained authority that He has placed in the church. Don't take opposition to authority lightly is the lesson. 
To some degree, we've spoken of many of these things already through the book. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, what we talked about last week, Paul uh, um, taught the necessity of laying aside those weights and of running the very best race we can possibly run for Christ. And one of Paul's greatest desires was that his life would be as godly as his preaching called others to be. That he would not have encouraged others to run a good race and then run a poor race himself. And so, Paul states how it is that we can run a good race. This is how we can run a good race, folks. This is how we can live victorious Christian living. This is how we can get out of the wilderness of carnal Christianity and step into the joy and the blessedness of the fullness of living through the Spirit of God. But there's one more thing we need to speak on before we're finished in this passage. You notice at the bottom there that our text does take us through verse 13. Paul has taken the time to warn us about sin. He has taken the time to link these warnings to the historical examples of the Old Testament to reveal to us the tremendous consequences of sin. But the Christian life really isn't, and we talked about this just briefly, it isn't just about rules, is it? I mean, really, when we think about it, the Christian life isn't about rules. It may seem that way sometimes. Christian life does have rules. But the Christian life isn't about what we aren't supposed to do. The Christian life is about having something so superior to sin that we don't want the sin. Something so much better than the sin that we could live in that we are going to pursue and cling to that which is better. We don't have to look at the world and say, oh, we don't get to do this. We don't get to do that. We don't get to wear that. We don't get to watch that. We don't get to say those things. We don't get to go those places. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is me looking at the Word of God, understanding what I've been redeemed out of, and not looking back at Egypt and saying, oh, I wish I had the fish and the leeks and the onions, but rather looking at what God has given to us and said, it's so much better than anything the world could ever offer me. This Christian life, the joy that it is to live through the power of the Spirit, the joy that it is to see sinners come to repentance, the joy that it is to have Christian fellowship in righteousness and true holiness is so much superior to anything the world could ever offer me that I don't want it. It's not about me denying myself all the pleasures of the flesh. It's about me having so much more in Christ. We don't do right because the rules tell us to do right. We do right because it pleases the one who redeemed us. redeemed us from our sin. We don't spend our energies resisting the joys of sin. We spend our energies finding greater joys and fulfillments in obedience to God. And as we read in the snippet at the beginning, I fear many Christians never realize this joy. That they're so busy trying to be a Christian but still live out the world's pleasures that they never have actually even tasted the pleasures that come from being fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we fall so short in our understanding of what God has for us because we're too busy being stuck in the world and pursuing the world's cravings and pursuing the world's loves and desires. So directly after these warnings that Paul gives, he reminds 
the believers in Corinth that not only are these lessons expected, not only can we live this life of contentment and obedience and purity, fearfulness and submission, not only is it expected, but we can do it through Christ. That we can live righteously through Christ. Verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world are come. Paul restates in verse 11 that these things are written for the church. That word world there literally means age. We are the ones upon whom the end of this age will come. We are in the church age, the final age according to prophecy before the kingdom. We are in the last days, the days of boundless divine mercy, just prior to days of tremendous tribulation and judgment, and then Jesus Christ ushering in the thousand year reign. And Israel's failures are our warnings. They are our admonition, our mild rebuke, our warning. And the warning is this. This is the application. Paul gives us the application tonight. I don't have to think it up. Verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That we who are God's church, who have a good understanding of God and His Word, who know what is right and what's wrong, who recognize our liberties in Christ, because remember the entire context of the past two chapters has been limiting our liberties for the sake of the Gospel and the sake of our brother's conscience and the sake of that which is most expedient. We who know all of these things should take heed lest we lift ourselves up in pride because we know it all and we fall. The old adage goes, the one who stands the tallest falls the farthest. My little girls are about this tall. They fall all the time. And they never get hurt. They're falling on their face. They're tripping over things. Bam! Now if you and I were to be running hit a carpet and fall on our face the same way my little girls do several times a day, there'd be no getting up. We'd just lie there. It'd be done. It would hurt. We'd have rug burns all over our face. We'd have bruises. We might even have some broken bones. Well, they can handle it because they're about this far from the ground. And so because they're not very far from the ground, when they fall, it doesn't hurt as bad. But we who are taller, we who are bigger, when we fall, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? It's going to be a crash. The taller we are in our Christian life, the harder the fall will be. The more we lift ourselves up in pride as to our piety, as to our godliness, the more we're setting ourselves up for a great fall. You know where the best place to be is? in your Christian life? Right here. On your knees in prayer. On your knees in humility. Recognizing that you are nothing before Almighty God. Recognizing that you have nothing, that you are nothing, that anything that you do have is His grace alone. Not lifting ourselves up saying, look at all we know, look at all we've accomplished, look at where we are, look at what we are. And you know, the higher you get, the farther you can fall. If your pastor were to fall into sin, his fall would be farther than yours. Because he's in an elevated position of authority. He's in an elevated position of expectation before God. 
So Paul's warning is that those who think they have it all together, those who have the most spiritual ability and knowledge, need also to be the most humble, the most careful, lest they falter, as even Moses and Aaron did in the wilderness, did they not? One author put it this way, if the Corinthians believed their standing in Christ and corresponding freedom could be exercised in sin with impunity, they were wrong. Possibly dead wrong. If a believer thinks they can abuse the freedoms in Christ to pursue the wickedness of this world without rebuke and chastening, they have another thing coming to them. If you think that you can rest with your fire insurance and live however you choose, you will find yourself down a miserable path to judgment. You might be saved yet so as by fire, but you will suffer great loss. But the good part is next. I'm not trying to discourage you this evening. Really, I'm not. Verse 13. See, because Paul tells us, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, he says, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You can live right with God. You don't have to lift yourself up into some uber piety in order to let others make others think that you're right with God. You don't have to elevate yourself to some unattainable standard in order to be right with God. You can be right with God through Christ. You don't have to sin. You don't have to fall. You can live a victorious Christian life. You can live in all the joys of the promised land as our illustration in the Old Testament goes. The temptations you go through and the sins that you struggle with in your life, they're not new to any human. You're not the first person to go through it. Perhaps you struggle with obedience. Perhaps you struggle with lying. Perhaps you have some addiction or some craving or you struggle with self-control or you struggle with anger. You know, you're not the first. But God is faithful, the Scriptures tell us. God does not allow any temptation into your life that He is not able to help you resist. On the authority of God's Word, every temptation you face from sin is resistible and comes with a way of escape if you are willing to humble yourselves, not be lifted up lest ye fall, but humble yourselves before the Lord and beg the Lord to give you the strength through His Spirit to overcome those temptations. Do you realize how precious this promise is? It is perhaps the most precious promise in all the Word of God to we who are believers certainly the most precious promises that we can be born again. If you're a Holy Spirit and dwell believer, you do not need to sin. There's no temptation that you cannot resist through the help of God. You have a problem with lying? With God's help, you can conquer that sin. You have a problem with anger? With God's help, you can conquer that sin. You have a problem with idolatry? With God's help, you can conquer that sin. So the problem in many of our lives is not that we can't find a way out of our sin through patient spiritual endurance and through the help of the Holy Spirit. The problem is often that we're so busy seeking a way into sin and trying to justify our sin through the Word of God. We're so busy trying to tell people why it's okay to sin because if you interpret the Bible this way, well then it doesn't mean what it says it says. The problem with the church today is not that we can't overcome. It's that we're too busy trying to get into the the fields of sin. We're too busy knocking on the door of Egypt trying to get back there 
It's not that we couldn't step into the victorious Christian life of Canaan if we would just trust the Lord. So, we know what sin is. You've seen that today. You know that you can sin. You know that you can overcome sin because God is faithful. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Is God worth it? Are you really seeking to find a way out of the sins that you have in your life that God has provided for you? Or are you too busy trying to find a way into sin? Are you running from sin? Or are you running from God? Are you living in victory over sin? Or do you look into Canaan and you say, no, that life is too hard. And you ignore the fact that that's the land flowing with milk and honey. And you say, we'll be content just to wander in the wilderness. Just to murmur and complain. Just to have idolatry fornication in our lives? Are you living in victory over sin? Or are you living a life of disregard to the consequences that await the servant of God who is not bearing fruit and laying up treasure in heaven? May God help us through His Holy Spirit to apply these truths to our lives this evening. To become that which God would have us to be. To recognize that we don't have to live a mediocre Christian life. Have you tasted the joys of being fully committed to the Lord? Have you tasted the joys of being fully Spirit-led? Are you tasting those daily in your life? Or are you a carnal Christian? Are you living in the wilderness? Experiencing the chastening of God? Allowing your sins to conquer you instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to help you conquer them. Let's pray together.